Hello, and welcome to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutionalism. I'm Adam White, a resident scholar here at AEI, and I'm joined, as always, by Tal Fortgang. Hi, Tal. Hi, Adam. And today, it's an honor and pleasure to be joined by a special guest, Greg Wiener, a visiting scholar here at AEI. And when he's not here, he's at Assumption College, where he serves as provost and academic vice president and director of the Moynihan Center and associate professor of political science. That's quite a lot to be doing. It feels like quite a lot. We'll get back to Moynihan maybe a little bit later since you wrote a book about him. But first, let's start with your most recent book. It's titled The Political Constitution, The Case Against Judicial Supremacy. What's the book about? Thank you for having me. First of all, the the book is about the idea that the Constitution is a matter of interpretation and authority belongs to the people and not to judges. So the idea is it's not a book about constitutional meaning. It's a book about constitutional authority. And it's attempting to recover a small-R Republican place for, for politics in the noble classical conception of the word. Years ago, our colleague Gary Schmidt told the New York Times that the Constitution is too important to be left to the lawyers. And just a moment ago, you said, in, in describing what your book is a response to, you said, and I can't remember your exact words, but you said the Constitution is not the property of judges. What, what did you mean by that? Well, I mean, the process of what Madison called liquidating the meaning of the Constitution in, in Federals 37 is, a, is fundamentally a political process. And that if we turn as fundamental a question as constitutional meaning over to judges with the final word, that's not to say they should have no word, but if we give them the final unquestioned word, that we're really giving up on our responsibility as citizens. Now, we're bringing our, our listeners into what's a pretty significant debate right now in American constitutionalism, especially it's not a debate between usual right and left coalitions. But there's an interesting debate happening, or it's been going on for years now, within the conservative libertarian family, the group that's most generally defined as textualists or originalists, although not always, this basic coalition of of lawyers and legal thinkers going back to basically the beginning of the Reagan administration, I think it's fair to say. I mean, there's always, there's foundations beneath that. But for a very long time, there was seemed a lot of consensus over both what the Constitution meant and how judges should go about deciding cases that arise under the Constitution. But what's interesting and important about your book is you are now part of a debate within that family over not so much the meaning of the Constitution, although that's part of it, sort of the meta question about what do the framers intend for the judiciary to be and to do. But it's less a debate about meaning and more a debate about how to go about finding that meaning through the political process and through judges. Is that, is that a fair way of putting it? I think it? that's a fair way to put it. And there's a lot at stake in this debate. It's that what's at stake is politics. It's whether, in, in my mind, whether we want to turn our most important political and legal document over to a technocracy, what really amounts to a technocracy of judges and legal experts as opposed to citizens embracing the responsibility to engage in it. The title of your book uses the word politics, the political constitution, in a way that almost sounds like an attack on the constitution. These days, nobody would want to associate anything with politics, right? It, it right. sounds like you're, you're damning the constitution. But you, you mean something different by politics. I, I do mean something different. I mean the politics in the Aristotelian sense of the word. I, I, I use the phrase raise publica a lot in the, in the book. And the idea is that there is a space between politics, the government, and the people that is the, the public thing, the, the, where the root of the word republic comes from. And that is the space in which we have to get into the habit of engaging with the Constitution, not, not outsourcing it to experts who we think are going to handle it for us. Now, the raise publica, that's a reference to 
the republic then, right. right? A republican government. How do you understand what it means to have a republic? Well, I think what it means to have a republic is, in Madisonian terms, it's that you the, the raw material you're working with is the public view, but it has to be, as Madison says in Federalist 10, refined and enlarged through the medium of elected representatives. So both those words are important. Refinement meaning meaning sort of weeding out bad ideas. And enlargement also is important because it, it refers to enlarging our point of view so that we, we can take into account the, the interest of the community, the common good, and not merely our individual goods. Why not just say judges should interpret the Constitution and decide cases? Why isn't that just a simple principle we all can agree upon? Well, because there's a lot at stake in those how judges interpret the Constitution and decide cases. I don't have any problem with judges deciding cases as in the, the deciding between the two parties before them. What I, what I do have a problem with is judges aggressively or assertively claiming an exclusive authority, a final authority to interpret the Constitution. So I, I've, the way I've described this before is that because no one can be trusted with absolute power, judges have to be trusted with absolute power which is a problem. And if you look at the constitutional design, it's, there are two ways to look at the judicial role. One, I've compared to a, a train line where there, you, a, a bill is introduced, and that's the first stop on the line, and then it may, may get to the president, which is the second stop on the line, and then it may eventually get to judges, which is the final stop on the line. That's not how the framers conceive of the Constitution at all. It's much more of, a, of an ongoing conversation between all three branches. And do you have sort of an example of, of this done the right way? Yeah, the National Bank, I think, would be a good Example. So the National Bank is proposed in the early 1790s. It sparks a vicious, I shouldn't actually say vicious, it's actually a quite dignified and, and substantive debate in the uh, early Congress. It is the Congress that decides whether this is constitutional. And, and, and Washington also, through, through soliciting the views of members of his administration. Madison eventually, when he's president, comes around to, to accepting the constitutionality of the bank, which he had quite fiercely opposed earlier. And the reason, he says, is that when a constitutional meaning has been accepted by successive generations of the people working through all three branches of government, then, then one person can't simply stand in the way. I guess this year we're celebrating still the 200th anniversary of McCullough versus Maryland, where when the court finally does come to the issue, they resolve the constitutional status of the bank. They consider the constitutional materials, but with an eye to the intervening history and giving weight to that in a meaningful way. Right. The most significant thing about McCullough may be the date because it comes well, well after. It doesn't get to the court until well after. It was too far too late to unwind that. Now, a lot of this discussion so far has been somewhat in the abstract, talking about judicial restraint and, and as you say, Federalist 37's notion of liquidation. In a, a very real sense, your book is a response to arguments that have been made over the last 10 years by others who have a less restrained view of the federal judiciary. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So friends of ours, Professor Randy Barnett uh, at Georgetown, Clark Neely at the Institute for Justice and others have for about a decade now been supporters of, of what they call judicial engagement. We often tend to think of these things in terms of judicial restraint versus judicial activism. Their argument is the right thing for courts to do is judicial engagement, to engage seriously with both constitutional meaning and the actual facts of governance, when a legislature, either Congress or a state legislature, says we are enacting this new program in order to solve such and such problem, Barnett and others argue the court shouldn't defer to that. They shouldn't take it at face value. They really need to look seriously at whether the, the legislature is being both honest 
and is actually going about its work in a way that could plausibly fix the problem it purports to fix. What's wrong with that? Well, there, there are a few things wrong with that. One is the argument is that judges should engage with the Constitution. My argument would be that citizens should engage with the Constitution. The legislatures very rarely have a single undifferentiated will, which is one of the reasons that legislatures are so advantageous in, in our constitutional politics. So to interrogate the motives of the legislature, to take the example of Congress, is to interrogate the, the 535 people all responding to different constituencies. I think what this ultimately amounts to is giving up on politics. It's giving up on politics and saying that, that we need a priesthood of judges to intervene between the people and their elected representatives. We'll come back to giving up on politics in a bit. I mean, I've put my own cards on the table. Anybody who's followed my work knows that I've been critical of judicial engagement myself and my own writing on the courts tends in your direction. But there is something to be said, I think, for the argument that judges can't take legislative assertions at face value, right? Hamilton in Federal 78 says we can't just leave the Congress to be the judge of its own power, just as we can't leave anybody to be the judge of their own power. And so when Congress asserts power under the Constitution, we need this independent external check on its authority. We need the courts to decide whether Congress has stayed within its ambit. And in that respect, as Hamilton says, it's not that the courts are superior to Congress, it's that they're both agents of the people, and they're each doing separate jobs. But the danger then, I suppose, is that the courts, I don't suppose, I, I've, I've argued myself, that the courts will go too far themselves in judging their own power as they judge the powers of, of Congress and other parts of government. I think that's exactly the problem. No one can be the judge of their own powers under this theory except for judges. It's very important when Hamilton says in 78 that Judges are agents of the people, too, because what it suggests is that the people's ultimate will is expressed through the Constitution. You can't exclude the people from understanding what their own will would be. Now, about 25 years ago, no more than that, 35 years ago, Antonin Scalia, before he was on the Supreme Court, spoke at a Cato Institute conference. So did Richard Epstein. And Cato later published this as a monograph. I think it's called Epstein versus Scalia. No, it's called Scalia versus Epstein. But, but if you look at the arguments, it really should have been Epstein versus Scalia because Epstein is on the attack. And he criticizes Scalia. He says, Scalia, you're in making the sort of judicial restraint argument that we're talking about here and being wary of judicial power, you're looking at the problems on just one side of the equation. You're very good, Scalia, at recounting all of the, the, the risk of overreach and mistake by the courts but you're not really taking seriously the risk of overreach or mistake by the legislature. In some ways, that's, that's, I think it's to the heart of, of the debate that you're having right now with Barnett and Neely. I think that's right, but it's important to keep in mind that mistakes of the legislature are correctable by the people if the people feel the legislature has, has exceeded its authority. I should be clear, I'm not saying there's no room for judges. What I'm saying is they shouldn't be exempted from the normal checks and balances to which every other branch is, is subject. So we tend to talk in, in terms of judicial restraint, which I don't think is, it captures part of the meaning, but not entirely, because we don't say, we, we don't refer to presidential restraint, mm -hmm. certainly not in the last generation, and we don't refer to congressional restraint. Right. What we do expect or should expect, I should say, is for presidents and members of Congress to have a proper constitutional vision of their office, of which they are not the sole judge. So I, I expect judges to have a certain degree of modesty about their role in the constitutional system. 
but I would not leave them simply to restrain themselves any more than I would leave the president to, to restrain him or herself. See, I'm glad you brought this up because this is actually one of those places where even with, with you and me, where we agree on so much here, I think there is actually some daylight between our views or at least a difference in emphasis. And I was struck by this when I, I first read your book in, in manuscript form because you and I have been exchanging drafts and papers on this for, for years now. And my approach to this, at least going back three or four years now, has actually been focused on the question of self-restraint. And I haven't published much on this because I'm still chewing on it as tall knows. Not yet. You haven't published much yet. Much yet. But for me, the more I thought about this issue, going back to a conference at the American Political Science Association a couple of years ago, and, and you very kindly cite my paper in, in your book on, on judicial engagement. I started thinking more in terms of self-restraint. We don't expect it much of Congress. Of course, Congress is self-restrained structurally, right? That was the whole point, was Congress being so powerful needed a structural self-restraint. We do, in a way, count on presidential self-restraint. The president swears an oath to take care of the laws are faithfully executed, not just the laws he likes, the laws he signed into law, but all laws. Now, of course, there's always wiggle room in that because the Constitution is itself a law and the president's obligated to prioritize the Constitution. But we do count on some measure of self-restraint with presidents. And I've, the more I've thought about it in the last few years, the more I've wondered with whether judicial self-restraint actually is something worth focusing on. Of course, we don't count on just self-restraint. We have checks and balances. But maybe we should, maybe our system does presume self-restraint among the executive and judicial branches more than we've, we've thought in the last few years. Well, I think one of the great myths about separation of powers in our system is that the Federalist 51 or that whole brace of essays from 47 to, to 51 on the separation of powers expects everyone to go all out in institutional combat and try to achieve as much as they can and someone else will pull them back. I, I don't think it assumes that. I think it assumes everyone in the system has a proper, if not proper, at least a thoughtful conception of their constitutional role within the separation of powers. But there are balances to their checks and balances to make sure they stay in their own lane. I wouldn't say anything different about judges. I'm not sure you're saying anything different about judges. I do think the proper disposition of a judge is modesty. Right? One person detached from the, from the people and from the problems the legislature is trying to deal with, one person whose, whose view is going to have a lot of as we understand the, the role of judges now, is going to have a lot of influence. And I think the, in a Burkean sense, I think the, the proper disposition toward that is modesty. Well, let's talk a little bit about Burke. We're saving that for later. But you have another book out very recently. In fact, you're in town for, I believe, an event on, on your book. That's right. It's titled Old Wigs, Burke, Lincoln, and the Politics of Prudence. And by the way, it has the best ever blurb from George Will. It says, Greg Weiner is among the most prolific and profound contemporary writers on political philosophy. Now, my first question is, the version that you surely have blown up on the wall, how big is this? Is this six feet across, 10 feet across? I, that's what I would do. Well, it said among, so I, I assume he had you in mind in the same Not, Well, that's also, that's a fake news. But let's talk about Burkean modesty. I mean, well, actually, why don't you just introduce that book? What are the politics of prudence? Sure. Prudence is, is a, Burke said, the most important of political virtues, especially, by the way, in constitutionalism. He said in, in the formation of new constitutions, it's in its province. But we've lost track of it. It's a, a virtue that in many ways starts with Aristotle. It gets interpreted through Aquinas and comes down to us through, not solely through Burke, but, but I think largely through Burke. The word itself has become in some sense a laughingstock that George H.W. Bush used to say thus and such wouldn't be prudent. And that was one of the great punchlines on, on Saturday Night Live. 
So we don't talk about prudence in a serious way anymore. And I think one of the reasons it is it's complicated. It assumes a certain sense of nuance and judgment that our politics doesn't have a lot of room for. Well, here on a podcast where we keep everything short, could you please take this timeless debate and boil it down to 30 seconds? Uh, what's, in, the, in the contemporary political scene in America today, how would you describe the prudence that we ought to aspire for? I would describe it as the ability to calibrate statecraft to circumstance. So one has to un be able to understand the, the character of one's own time in relation to the past and to the to the future. So Aquinas has a wonderful definition of prudence that I'm going to botch, but it's it's in the book, which is he says providence is the principal part of prudence, but the other two parts are memory of the past and understanding of the present in order to provide for the future. Now, you're focused not just on Burke, but Burke and Lincoln. Yeah. So how does Lincoln exemplify this? Well, Lincoln is... The, the, the I mean, Lincoln, really, if I remember correctly, he fought a war. So he it's, not, it's not he prudence did. just in terms of total self-restraint, of, of a total lack of energy. That's right. And that's why I say calibrating statecraft to circumstance. So one of the things that makes the Burke and Lincoln so fascinating is that they write in a very prudent way, but their statecraft was quite bold. One of the, the, I think it's the opening anecdote in the book is that Burke has to be buried in an unmarked grave because he thought the Jacobins were coming to desecrate his remains. That's, that's how, how much of a, in Straussian terms, last-ditch resistance he was willing to, to put up to the French Revolution. Lincoln the same way. I, I think Lincoln in his time was known as a moderate to the, to the consternation of radicals and conservatives on, on both sides of him. But there's nothing about prudence that, that inherently requires caution or, or restraint when the circumstances demand something different. Burke speaks in terms of what he calls a moral rather than a complexional timidity. So a timidity that arises from a humility about man's ability to comprehend the whole, right? and particularly something as complex as the workings of, of society. So he has a, a wonderful passage in which he says that the, it, what is given to the statesman is to glimpse his object to glimpse his object and to move toward it deliberately. And I don't think there's a finer example of that in modern statecraft than, than Lincoln. Now, bringing up Lincoln sort of brings us full circle on the question of the role of the courts. And as you were answering, I was, pa I was paging through looking for the copy from his first inaugural address, Lincoln's famous line about the Supreme Court. And I'm going to botch it now since I don't have the text in front of me, right? But it's, how does he put it? The candid citizen must confess, must admit that if the great issues of our time are fixed, the moment the Supreme Court decides them in cases ar arising between individuals, then the people will cease to be their, 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 their rulers, own right, their own masters, and have committed themselves to, the, to that tribunal. And I just botched it there. But, that eminent tribunal. That eminent tribunal. So Lincoln himself had a view of the Supreme Court, which isn't too far from yours, at least raising questions about the role of the, of the people in deciding constitutional issues outside of the court. Does that in any way exhibit the sort of prudence we're talking about? I mean, although there it's Lincoln sort of asserting himself as a political actor, sort of pushing back against the court. So it's not self-restraint. If anything, it's the opposite. Right. I, I think it does exemplify constitutional prudence. But the, the one thing I would emphasize is it's under extreme conditions. So one of Burke's wonderful insights is never reason to, from the extreme case to the ordinary case. I do not think presidents should be in the business of, of outright ignoring Supreme Court rulings or asserting wholesale and, and unchecked meaning of the Constitution. But in the circumstances under which Lincoln found himself, and, and, and prudence is, is really ultimately about circumstance, about, about rooting oneself in the, in the reality that one faces, I think that does exemplify prudence. It's funny. Hamilton in Federal 78, in talking about the weakness of the court, 
he says that actually the court needs to rely on the president That's right. to carry out his judgments. And the fact is that we don't often see presidents just ignore Supreme Court rulings, quite the opposite. Even when they lose, they tend to honor them. There's a, you know, a couple of maybe famous counterexamples, right? We are going to bleep out the name of Andrew Jackson on this podcast. Okay, well, there you go. Be careful. <laughs> and that actually is one of the sorts of self-restraint I always keep in mind, right? The fact that presidents generally restrain themselves from thwarting Supreme Court decisions, even though by at least Hamilton's own admission, they had that power. I think that is implicit in Hamilton's statement that the Supreme Court relies on the, on the executive for enforcement. We don't see that very often, and I don't think we should see it very often, but it shouldn't be unthinkable, right? One of the, I think it may be the opening anecdote in the political constitution is of President Obama after Citizens United, which I think was rightly decided, but he thought was wrongly decided, criticizing it during the State of the Union address in, I want to say, 2010. Everyone was aghast that there should be conflict between the president and the court. Now, there, there was something unmannered about it in the sense that, that they were not in a position to respond and he was criticizing them to their faces in a, in a setting that he completely controlled. But there's nothing wrong with presidents criticizing the Supreme Court. I think that's something we need more of. Is there anything wrong with justices criticizing presidents? Yes. Is this, this, so this is just a one-way fight? Well, I don't think justices should swim out of their lanes in the same sense that, that Justice Ginsburg did, for example, with candidate Trump. So justices are not to be engaged in politics in the in the baser sense of the electoral politics and day-to-day -day politics. We're a, I mean, Justice Alito mouthed the words not true at the, with respect to the State of the Union address on Citizens United, and I would, I would have had no problem with him saying that out loud. Maybe that was his prudence. He didn't say the words. He just That's mouthed right. them. I actually had in so mind- So there was a camera on him. I, 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 uh, I had in mind with that question, not so much Ginsburg, although that was a famous example. I was thinking of this past summer, when Chief Justice Roberts, well, a little while earlier, he responded in a way to President Trump criticizing Obama judges, what Trump called Obama judges. Right. And Roberts said, uh, there are no Obama judges, there are no Trump judges, there are just judges. I thought that was interesting. I thought in a way he was actually, he wasn't so much defending Obama judges as laying down a preemptive defense of Trump judges who may find themselves facing a lot of the same criticism that Obama's judges do right now. But but Roberts then later in the summer gave a talk up in, I think, a, a university up in New York, and it was covered in the New York Times. But Roberts talked about the political pressures that are put on the court from a public and politicians who don't understand the court the way they should. And he warned that the court is not a political body, or at least it's not a partisan body. And I'm still not sure what I make of that talk. I mean, I, I think of the court as a political body of a sort in the same way that say Tocqueville did and saying that judges are given immense political power. And I liked Roberts's statements. I just wonder about the, the prudence of justices responding to presidential attacks. Well, as the chief justice and particularly one who views himself as an institutionalist, I have no problem with him standing up for the institution of the, the court. I have to say, I have, I, I'm not familiar with the, the second address that you mentioned, but I have less sympathy for judges whining, which I don't mean to attribute to the, the Chief Justice in the circumstance, but whining about criticism as though they're this fragile flower that'll wither away the first time someone criticizes them. I think our problem is quite the opposite, that we lionize judges to an extent that, that they become a priesthood. And the, the Constitution has become somehow inaccessible to the rest of us, despite the, the, the patent simplicity in which it's written. 
Just one more question about the court really quickly. You mentioned that Chief Justice Roberts thinks of himself in, as an institutionalist. I think that's exactly right. How should a justice in going about his or her work sort of think about institutional interests of the court sort of separate from just sitting there and interpreting the text on a page? Well, I think they all do this to some extent. There's a long literature about justices never getting too far in front of public opinion, which is a means of institutional thinking that they don't want to find themselves issuing a ruling that, that doesn't get enforced. I, that, that kind of thinking, I think, is, is completely appropriate. I don't think it should deform their understanding of the Constitution, but the NFIB case would be a good test case of that proposition, because I do think there's a certain extent to which were the political circumstances different, were it not in the middle of a heated presidential reelection campaign, would Chief Justice Roberts have seen the issue differently? I think he ruled probably rightly in that case by, by trying to save the, the individual mandate as a tax. But there's no question there was a context in which he wasn't going to he didn't want to see the court overturn the most the largest piece of social legislation since I assume since the Great Society, right in the middle of a presidential election. I only have a few minutes left. I want to talk a little bit about politics. You said at one point that so much of what you're responding to right now is a sense among many conservatives and libertarians of giving up on politics. Yeah. And yeah, I think you compared it earlier to technocracy, and I think that's right in a way that there are many people in our politics and our government who want to hand issues to technocratic experts in administration. And then there are others who want to hand issues to judges, which is another kind of technocratic expert. But of course, so much hangs on what our politics looks like. And you, in your first book, sketch out what you call Madison's metronome, a Madisonian view of politics, the pacing of politics. Why don't you just say a word about that, about what Madison's metronome was? Sure. Madison's metronome was dealt with the role of time in Madison's constitutional politics. And the idea was that for Madison, in the natural conditions of the time, delay would diffuse passions naturally. That was a psychological assumption, I, I argue, that was undergirding the Constitution. Of course, that doesn't work that way anymore. Things, word travels much more quickly as it, as it is in this podcast, for example. I think that, that what technology has done is taken patience for, and converted it from a fact of life into a virtue, which is a a real interesting challenge for the Madisonian regime because Madison ultimately doesn't want to rely on virtue. Yeah, you see policy being made through the executive branch pretty swiftly. I mean, notice and comment takes a little time, but pretty swiftly. And then you have judges swing into action, issuing injunctions, declaratory judgments. The judges, and who are often basically picked by the litigators, are just as energetic as the presidency. And so you have this acceleration of our constitutional disputes, where a law is passed, and then it's in the Supreme Court within a year. Now, if you're somebody who's on, the, who's feeling the burden of a law that's unconstitutional, that swiftness is a, is a virtue, but it's not necessarily the right way to run a country. It's a virtue if you win. Right. Right. It's a virtue if you're right. If you're, well, but if you, right and winning are not the same True. thing, right? So you may, you may, you may get the wrong judge. Moynihan had a, a wonderful line that I, I will now botch. Social change never moves quickly enough from the, from the perspective of the person experiencing oppression or, or difficulty. And it is the role of the statesman to take into account the whole within the sweep of history that can have unfortunate consequences. But I think a politics that draws us out of ourselves in Tocquevillian terms, that says, if I want to establish that I have a right to something, I need to knock on my neighbor's doors. I need to 
I need to convince people of something, I think is in the end much more more dignified and places rights on a much sounder foundation. And that was the book of yours that I haven't mentioned yet, right? Is American Burke, uh, your study of, as you put it, the uncommon liberalism of Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Moynihan as Burke? Well, I I never argue that, that Moynihan is influenced by Burke. He does quote him a couple dozen times, but certainly as someone whose liberalism is is framed by the the idea of limitation right which is a which is a core burkean principle so you like i are part of this new department here at AEI the program on social cultural and constitutional studies you're making the rest of us look bad by writing by publishing two books a year so thank you for that and thank what, you for suggesting it's a pattern yeah what are you working on next I'm working on a proposal on Reinhold Niebuhr as uh, the, pol the political reflection of Reinhold Niebuhr as someone who also, I think, embodies that, that basic idea of limitation, which I think arises from his theology in a way we haven't fully appreciated. Well, we'll look forward to that. In the meantime, welcome to AEI and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You've all been listening to an episode of Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutionalism. Tune in for the next episode soon. I often have to counsel undergraduates that it's a very expensive way to tread water. I mean, if you... Law school or higher education? <laughs> well, law school. Law school, yeah. I, I wouldn't say that. I would never say that about an undergraduate. A lot, well, it is. A but, but a lot of, yeah, I mean, as you know, a lot of them just, they don't know what else to do, so they figure I'll go to law school. Yeah, I know people who say they want to go to law school, and I spend years, I, I haven't spent years on him yet, but like my friend, do you know Jeremy? Yeah. Yeah, so you know, probably know Jeremy, right? Sure. Yeah. And I spent three years telling him, don't go to law school. And then at that point, he said he was going to law school. And I said, okay, well, then it, this is fine because you know all the reasons why you shouldn't go. So it's okay to go. But it's the people who say, well, I'll go to keep my, my options open. I hate them. And, and I'm refreshing my status checkers nonstop oh, to it, see it, if it, I got it, in Applications? Anywhere. Yeah. I was talking to Robert about him on Friday. I was in a meeting with Robert. And oh, no. I didn't bring you up, but I, he just said, how are things going? And I said, oh great. Everything here is great. I've got the best research assistant ever, blah, blah, blah. And Robert said, yeah, but the problem is he's going to go to law school. And he th and he thinks that there's only one law school in the country. And I said, well, actually, Robert, he thinks that there are two. But the fact is he's correct and there is only one law school in the country. <laughs>